0: During the past two years, we've been sharing our love for Lebanon on this blog, Beirut's Bright Side, or what we like to call BBS. All that's good and bright, all that brings peace, all that's full of positive energy, all that strives to make our future brighter. Articles and stories curated from all over, and now, this podcast. A place where you can hear what Beirut has to say. My name is Leila, and I'll be your host for this podcast. I've always been intrigued and captivated by all forms of storytelling, and this podcast has been in the making for a while. At Beirut's Brightside, we wanted to create an intimate connection with our readers and hopefully listeners. We want to inspire you and keep you company during long car rides or while you're cuddling up at home. We want to reach out to our fellow Lebanese abroad, keep you close to where the heart is we will be sharing episodes in Arabic, French, and English. For this first episode, I chose a guest whom I met at the Cannes Film Festival last year, where his debut feature film, Tramontaine, was screened during La Semaine de la Critique. I was drawn to his storytelling abilities. I wanted to know more about Lebanese-Armenian filmmaker Vaché Boulgorian. What's his story? What inspires him and... How he got into filmmaking. It's a sunny Friday afternoon, and Vache chose to meet me in the busy Armenian quarters of Burshamud. Vache, can you describe um, where we are and what does this neighborhood mean to you?
1: We're in Bursamud. This is uh, the neighborhood where m- most Armenians were brought to. In after 1915 once they left Anatolia the, after the genocide in 1915 they were brought here and uh, my parents uh, were. Uh, my mother was born here and on my father's side uh, my grandparents lost their children my, because this used to be all swampland uh, it's right across from the quarantine where most immigrants were brought to and quarantined. But then there were so many Armenians that they were sort of given this land to settle on. So there, was a, there were illnesses like malaria, cholera. My grandmother lost three children. Then they decided, my grandp- they decided to just move to Bigfaya. And that's where my father was born. So, but then he started working here, and you know, this is where uh, my mother spent her youth. This is where my father worked for quite some time, and I can show you where he worked. Now it's all changed. It's very developed now, but so yeah, it's, there's a lot of personal connections to this, to this area.
0: How was it to uh, grow up in an Armenian community?
1: I I didn't grow up in this uh, in this neighborhood. Uh, during the war my parents had already moved out but we used to come here quite often because they have a lot of friends here and uh, it was a very familiar space to them growing up it was I grew up during the Civil War here so as I mean at that time each community was very insulated uh, because because it was the, the the war forced them to be insulated So, I grew up in a very Armenian uh, sort of environment, and it's often like being in exile in your own land, but at the same time not. I remember when the war ended, and I was able to go to other parts of Lebanon, the other side of Beirut. It was almost as though I never knew how to breathe, and I started breathing again. This area is very special to me, but also Lebanon is special to me. So so I stopped being in exile in my own land, in a way, after the war ended, and I felt much more at home. My grandfather has a very interesting story about it, about being brought to Bouchamud for the first time. Uh, I guess the train, there was a, you know, passed uh, through Bouchamud, and the stop was, you know, right before the stop in Beirut, there was a stop in the quarantine. So, the train was coming from Syria, and they were, they were the ones who were, you know, so all these Armenian refugees were in, in this train, and it stopped in the quarantine. They were allowed to, they were asked to leave the train, and then the train just moved on. And there was no one to either greet them or tell them, what to do next or where to go. So they were just left in the middle of, a, of an area which was uh, looked all but abandoned next to a swampland. So you have hundreds of refugees just standing by the train tracks, not knowing where to go and what to do, just standing there. Until, apparently, the man who owned the Ford dealership at the time was driving by and saw these men, women, and children just standing there and start speaking with them. Later on, invited all of them to come and stay in the hangars where he kept uh, his cars. So, all of them went to where the, where the Ford cars were kept and they lived there. They were allowed to live there by this man uh, until they found homes, jobs, and could stand on their two feet again. Stories like this really move me. You know, they're—I mean—they show a great deal of empathy, humanity. You know that we sometimes forget. You know, especially you know, I would love to include in movies because you want to preserve these stories. This is—I mean—this is the type of example you want to set you know
0: you were saying your mother your mother was a wonderful storyteller Um, are these types of stories that she would tell you when you were growing up you've heard these stories from her
1: Uh, well I've heard stories from her from my grandparents of course uh, my uncles my aunts they I mean basically they grew up telling stories to one another and so they really have You know, fine-tuned the craft of storytelling because they were also extraordinary critics. You know, so if someone wasn't telling the story quite right, or if there was a false note, they would detect it right away and would criticize it essentially. But so they, so they were very good storytellers themselves. Uh, They told stories about, uh, you know, their my grandparents told stories of their lives in Anatolia, growing up there, but also. Uh, so, but my uh, my mother, her siblings, told stories about growing up in Beirut in the thirties, forties, fifties, which was a very different place back then, and uh, they're fascinating stories, and you know, always had uh, some sort of moral inevitably attached to it. But always, I mean, more importantly, they were very suspenseful and uh, very well told, and. Sometimes funny, sometimes tragic and heartbreaking, and uh, ultimately very moving. So, I guess more than a moral, it's actually about moving, you know, emotion, having some sort of emotional impact, recognizing yourself in one of these stories or situations. Furthermore, they were really good listeners. I think that's what made them good storytellers, you know. Yeah, there you go. It's, there's a lot of traffic. And so, um, uh, you know, and that's something I learned from them as well. In order to tell good stories, you have to be a good listener.
0: You said that your love for storytelling also comes from the theater. You used to go to the theater here in Burj with your parents as a kid.
1: Yeah, that's true. I uh, We didn't live in Burj but um, they had a very strong attachment to this part of the city because they had a lot of friends here um, and one of the things that they used to love doing is going to the theater and they, used to, at that time the, the theater company used to produce plays you know translated uh, Shakespeare into Armenian Pirandello, Pinter uh, Ionesco and they would just come and watch these plays and again be extremely moved by them. And, um, and I, used, I remember being completely absorbed in these stories. Obviously, there, there was, these weren't like, you know, Broadway shows or anything like that, but they were. So the productions were very modest, but the acting was so sincere that I couldn't help but be absorbed, you know? Were real people acting on stage, you know, and so going to the theater. uh, And I also used to go to the to the movies a lot uh, and watch movies incessantly because we didn't have school at the time. So we used to watch movies at home. My one of my uncles is a movie fanatic, and he and so what he used to do was. Collect, and to this day he does, I think, he collects 16mm projectors, um, 35mm projectors, 8mm projectors, uh, any kind of projector that has become obsolete now, she, he he has them all. And, um, and not only that, he also collected 35mm films and 16mm films, 8mm films. So, and has reels and reels and reels of movies. So we used to be at home, but we didn't have school. He used to hook up his projector to a battery and have us watch movies, black and white movies, silent movies, while there was bombing going out outside. So in, in, the, in the shelter, we used to watch silent movies. He used, to, he used to just hang up. He used to have the whole setup. Like, he used to hang a blanket, you know make a makeshift little theater for us my cousins and i were all um you know between the ages of i don't know uh, eight and fifteen and we used to just sit down on the ground and stare at this blanket which was you know full of wonders there so uh, and again uh, we were able to sort of escape the reality for a moment the reality outside and just be completely absorbed in this like whether it's like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, you know, or Voyage to the Moon and laugh.
0: Did you dream at that time of becoming a filmmaker? Did you did you want to work in that field? Did you see yourself doing that? Was it
1: Yeah, I th- I think I making movies was beyond my imagination. You know, it seemed like such a massive endeavor and beyond my means or you know my abilities at the time we did want to we really did want to uh, tell our own stories and make our own movies eventually and eventually my father bought me a camera a video camera so we started making movies
0: how old were you huh? how old were you at the time i was
1: uh, eight years old at the time We'd already seen a lot of silent movies, a lot of Hollywood musicals, and then uh, so b- by that time we felt like you know we should graduate to like war movies and serious serious subjects, you know, and um, and so my cousins and I would try, you know go to the forest with my camera, um, like make props. You know, with whatever we found around the house or in the garage or whatever, you know, whatever we found and uh, made costumes. (laughs) My cousin, so so we'd just um, make these small movies and and then watch them and be very amused.
0: (laughs) Do you you still have them somewhere?
1: (laughs) No, no, actually, we don't. Uh, I wish I did, but. They're all gone they got lost uh, with all the moving incessant moving around you know so but you know that was that was just like you know playing around essentially i mean never i never thought that i would actually you know embrace filmmaking as a as a as a work you know but eventually i started realizing the power of storytelling Uh, and how that can change lives and so and how it can impact people so I started uh, taking it much more seriously and uh, I wanted to preserve some of the stories that I'd I'd heard both from my family but also when I was making documentaries in the Middle East like uh, meeting people and hearing their stories in remote places, where and so I would just, I just want, I just felt like these these are stories and images that need to be preserved in our in our collective memory. As a...
0: is making movies about conveying messages as much as it is about telling a story.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, shot shut up, Um I I think that every every work of art uh, does inherently have uh, a message, but it's not it's not supposed to be didactic. That that's something I'm personally uh, against, and it's just uh, a, I think the best that message. I guess it's not a, really a message. It's more about inspiring some sort of dialogue or a discourse, you know. Uh, and so if you can uh, invite people to d- discuss, to parse the sort of the situation the circumstances that face them, face them as well as so through your story, you're basically inspiring people to uh, look into themselves and look at their society. And try to uh, try to have some sort of discussion, you know. So I think that's the best one can hope for.
0: Working on this movie, filming in remote villages, you said that the country is almost a character in itself. Um, what did you learn about your country? What did you learn about Lebanon? And did it uh, transform into an exploration of your own identity? Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I the way I look at films is like. Each movie, making each film is, is an adventure uh, because you meet people that you would never otherwise meet. You go to places that you would otherwise never go to. And through these encounters, you learn a lot about the place where you're filming and about yourself. In the course of making this film, you know I was working with a man who was blind in real life as a lead actor he was acting for the first time and so acting in a film which he would never see but so this was actually one of the first ethical issues I faced when I wrote the very first draft I was facing this question of like how I wanted to work with a blind actor but how would it be to work with a man who would never eventually see this film you know what does that mean what are the implications of that is that Ethically questionable. I immediately started casting, and soon discovered that they—you uh, know—everyone uh, went to the cinema, and everyone enjoyed uh, the television, and so they were following the narratives, and so it's pure—they were following the storytelling. And, uh, I mean that resonated with me because I put a lot of importance on the story as well and the clarity of the story, the clarity of the narrative. Uh, not trying to, not trying to be lazy about storytelling and skip details. And so, and uh, they were, you know, meeting Barakat for example, I, and his friends. I soon discovered that th- through, th- through him, I discovered that that. the the logic of storytelling was very important. They immediately recognized an error, you know, if something was wrong in the storytelling process. So, and, uh, so, so anyway, my, my fears of having any type of, um, you know, any ethical issue related to casting a blind man were were soon dispelled. And uh, I went ahead with writing, over a hundred drafts of a screenplay and developing the project and eventually shooting it. And it's been one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life.
0: So you, you know, grew up, went to school, university in the States, between LA, you worked in New York. How does being Lebanese and Armenian shape your work? Um, of course, in this case, there's a story in Lebanon, but how does it shape your art, your work as a filmmaker?
1: Well, it's not just being Lebanese. I mean, that, uh, or Armenian, you know. It was also uh, the very unique experience of, you know, people from my generation um, who grew up during the Civil War here and were constantly moving around, you know, essentially trying to find a place that is safe, always fleeing to safety. And I heard someone describe... Our generation once in in New York, actually, and saying that there's a very unique problem that we all have, and that is to describe where home is, and that is exactly what has ended up sort of shaping my work, you know. So yes, my you know my background as an Armenian and as a, as a Lebanese. Um, but it uh, does you know, influence my work, the way I see my work. But it's also this unique experience of growing up during the civil war here and having to find safety um, and constantly traveling and always feeling like an exile. And so how do you define who you are every time you're in exile? Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you start over? these have always been in the forefront of, of how I relate to the world, you know, how I think about the world. So it's really, like, it's shaped my worldview.
0: We're talking about Beirut's bright side and what it means to you.
1: The people, uh, their desire for life, to live, to live well and happy and celebrate. And no matter how difficult things get here, people do not people do not stop celebrating. They always want to look for the bright side, and uh, I think that's what keeps the country going.
0: So you're not going anywhere.
1: I'm staying right here in Beirut.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: A heartfelt thank you to Vache for sharing with us his story. We'll end this episode with this song, performed by Barakat Jabour in the closing scene of Vache's first feature film. The music of the movie was supervised and composed by the talented composer, pianist, and artist Cynthia Zavén. Till next time, this is Beirut's bright side.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yale, yale, I was اقول مش to اقول اقول to say, That think it's not